Okay, we are going to finish up Mark 13. And we've been talking about the Olivet Discourse. I'm pretty sure we'll make it. We've been talking about the Olivet Discourse. So I got a couple of just background, remember where we came from slides. What's the first one look like? Okay, remember the context. We look at the Olivet Discourse. We look at the Olivet Discourse. It's covered in three different areas in the gospel. Matthew 24, 25, uh, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. In each one of those sections, it's brought about as a result of Jesus leaving the temple after being rejected as Messiah. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. It's empty. We see an, an example of that in the Old Testament. Now, as we work our way through, I'm going to continue to be talking about what, uh, what people call near and far fulfillment. Okay, so I, I'm hoping I can, I can plant it into your brain. Uh, I went hunting with Robin. I don't, it wasn't this year, it was a year before. And we climb up on top of this crazy mountain. We look and we're standing back on another mountain. So we go down into a valley up the other side of the mountain. We get up on that mountain. We're pretty sure we're going to be able to take that mountain and ride that ridge out of the mountains that we're in, over in Pine. So we're out hunting elk, and if we come across any, that would be cool. But no, I just go on long walks with my bow. That's what I do. And, and I make myself tired. And you think I'd lose weight, but I don't because I eat the whole time I'm out there walking up and down the mountains. But anyways, so we get to the top of that peak. And we get all the way to the top of the peak. And you could have seen, you, we were deflated. Because when we got to the top, there was another valley between me and the next peak. So, you can only understand that if you've already dropped down in a valley and up a peak and thought you were done. But we weren't done. And sometimes when we look prophetically in the Word of God, prophets are seeing peaks. But they don't see the valley between them. And sometimes what happens on the first peak is what we call a near fulfillment. An opportunity for the, for the Word of God to have, have been at least partially fulfilled in the present time. And then beyond that, there's another valley and another peak. And on that peak, we see the ultimate fulfillment of what it is that, that God's laying out for us. And so we're going to see uh, near and far fulfillment. So when we look in Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, we know that God's talking to the disciples about the time they're in, right? And he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and all that's going to happen during their lifetimes, Right? But in the midst of laying all that out, he's also giving hints for you and I. Because you and I, we don't live in 70 A.D., do we? We live a long time from 70 A.D. So we look at those scriptures and we see hints. Why do we see hints? Well, we're going to talk about it in a moment. But the Bible tells us over and over and over again, there is something called the day of the Lord. You ever heard of that? There is something called the day of the Lord. Ultimate Judgment Day. The Bible lays it out. Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to take a look at it. But as we do, we want to recognize when we see hints of it, it's pointing to something yet future. But there may be a near fulfillment. That's what we're looking at in the Olivet Discourse. So we want to remember, Jesus is answering their questions. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He's pointing to the temple. And he's laying those things out. We go to the next slide. You'll remember, he he told them... Here's the things you want to be warned about. What was the warnings? We've all heard this, right? False Christ, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, earthquakes in various places. All sound familiar, yeah? 
All of these things. But if you look at careful reading of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will say, and all these things must happen, and the end is not yet. What does that mean? That means when we see wars and natural disasters and, and persecution taking place, sometimes our minds immediately go to, this must be the end. But what's God telling the disciples? That's not the end, fellas. You need endurance, guys, because that's not the end. The road that we're going to walk is going to be hard. It's going to be tough. There's going to be difficulties throughout that road. So I want you to know, this is just the beginning of birth pangs. Yet, you know, a brand new mom, last thing she wants to hear when she's getting ready to have a baby is, oh, that's Braxton Hicks. Why, why is that the last thing you want to hear? You mean I haven't started yet? This is like fake labor? It's not real? Yeah. And so that's what Jesus is telling them in these events. Okay, these events aren't the real deal. It's not the end of the world. It's not the, the culmination, okay? They're, they're like birth pangs. So sometimes we pay attention to how often they're happening, okay? Because birth pangs keep coming more and more frequently as we move toward the end. But Jesus' point is, don't be afraid of those things. That's life in a fallen world, right there. Right? Life in a fallen world looks like that. False Christ, wars, natural disasters, and persecution. That's part of life. But the next one, the next slide, as he continues to go through the Olivet Discourse, he tells us about the sign. You guys remember? He said, they, they, the disciples asked him, when are these things going to happen? The destruction of the temple. When's it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your return? So he's going to lay out for him the sign of the destruction of the temple and his return. So that's what he lays out for us right here. We look at the abomination of desolation. That phrase is used in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. In Luke 21, we see the surrounding of the city that leads to the desolation of the city. But the exact same language is used in all three. You remember the language? Run for the hills. Get off your house. Don't go in the house. Don't grab a coat. Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Same language on all three. Same language. What am I talking about? Remember I, I just mentioned near and far, near and far, near and far. There's a near thing coming. Luke 21 said the city's going to be surrounded. When you see the city surrounded, get out. Mark 13 said, listen, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it's not supposed to. And Matthew 24 says, standing where he ought not. Or standing in the holy place, Matthew 24 each one pointing to another event. We see a near fulfillment in the surrounding and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple during the lifetime of the disciples. Did that happen? That happened, right? But we see a distant hint that there's more. There's more. That's not the end. Did the time end in 70 AD? Did everything stop? No. So there's still a day coming. That wasn't judgment day, right? Then there's still a day, there's still another time coming. So when we talk about the abomination of desolation, guys, we talked about it. It's mentioned three places in the Old Testament. Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. Daniel 9 puts it in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. The only place the Bible talks about a seven-year period of time that hasn't occurred yet. Seven-year period of time we call the what? Tribulation. Okay, seven-year period of time. We call the tribulation. So Daniel 9 says it happens in the middle. Three and a half years. Daniel 9. Daniel 11 says that the abomination of desolation happened in 167 B.C. under Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Daniel 11 is a prophecy concerning the Greek Empire. Daniel 9 is a prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. What does that mean? It means there's more than one. There's more than one hilltop that the prophet's looking at. Do you understand? One hilltop happens in 167 BC. So you and I, we can look at it and say, look, it looks just like this. Antiochus came into the temple, sacrificed a pig, put up a idol and told everybody to bow down and worship it. And Daniel said, that is the abomination that makes desolation. Then in Daniel 9, he says it's going to happen again. In the middle of the 70th week. And in Daniel chapter 12, he says it's going to happen again. Same thing, in the middle of the 70th week. So we see two references that reference a future event. One reference that references a past event. Well, what are we supposed to do when it happens? On the next one, he said, this is what we do. When you see... The abomination of desolation. Poof. There we go. <clears throat> Standing in the holy place. Remember we talked about that, right? Standing in the holy place is what it said in Matthew 24. Standing where it ought not is what it says in Mark 13. Surrounding the city is what it says in Luke. Okay? So Luke is the near fulfillment. That's when the city is destroyed. Mark and Matthew are the far fulfillment. When it happens in the middle of what we call the 70th week of Daniel. But the reason I know that Matthew and Mark don't talk about 70 AD is what it says in 2 Thessalonians. You remember? We talked about it last time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. What day are we talking about? The day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord. That day will not come. Unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now who's that? Who's the man of sin? Son of perdition. We're, we're looking at the, what the Bible calls Antichrist. Uh, a distant leader. Just like Antiochus was a leader, right, that, that messed up the temple. We're looking for another one, somewhere in the future. Somewhere in the future. What's it say he does? He opposes and exalts himself above everything that is called God. Did that happen in 70 AD? No. Or that is worship, so that he sits like God in the temple of God. Did anybody do that in 70 AD? No. The temple caught on fire, burned to the ground, the city was destroyed, but this never happened. So when I look at what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says, Don't you remember I told you these things? I told you there's a future, there's a past event that looks like a future reality. Are you with me? There are past events that help teach us about a future reality. The time when Jesus Christ is going to return and sit down on the throne as king. So it's, it's doing one of these things. Standing where it ought not, standing in the holy place or surrounding the city. One near fulfillment, the other far. Next slide will tell us what we're supposed to do. Remember we talked about this. What do you do when you see it? And who was the message to? It was message to specific people, right? And every time the message is specifically to those who are in Judea. So unless you're planning on moving to Israel, you don't have to worry about doing one of those things. If you're in Israel, if you're in Judea, get out. But if you're not, if you are in, what do you do? Flee the city, run to the hills. Don't hesitate, don't pack, don't do nothing. Get out, get out, get out, get out. Alright? That's what the Lord says. That's what he told the people in 70 AD when you see the city surrounded. Get out, get out, get out. If they got out, what happened? They lived. If they stayed, what happened? They died. But the Lord told them, 
He told him what was going to take place. That is also near fulfillment. We saw it in Jerusalem. Far fulfillment. It's for another day. There's another day coming like it. The Bible says there's a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. One of the most common things spoken of throughout the scripture. Let's take a look at the the next one. False messiahs. Don't follow false messiahs. Remember, false Christ were important. What's a false messiah? He'll tell you not to worry about these things. He'll say, ah, you don't got to flee the city. He'll say, ah, you don't have to pay attention to any of those things. You don't have to follow what's being taught. That's a false messiah. False messiah. We all are always watching out for false messiahs. And then the next one. He said there's a radical change coming. Remember, the sun darkened, the, the stars fell out of the sky, the moon turns to blood or is darkened. It, it gave all those signs, right? Now, when we look at those signs, what would we think? End of the world, right? Right? That sun, if the sun turns off, that's a, that's, it don't come back on, right? There's, there's not somebody to turn the switch off and, uh-oh, what happened? Somebody needs to turn it back on. It's, if it's off, it's off. So the sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, the stars fell out of the sky. That's the end of something. Now what we find, and we're going to talk about it in just a minute, there are near fulfillments where that is an example of God moving in history and changing uh, political environments. We talked about it. Remember, we talked about the same language is used when God removed Babylon as a world power. Same language is used when God removed Egypt as a world power. Same language is used when God removes the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, Israel, and when, when they go into captivity. Same language, same language, same language. But, not every time the language is used. Because sometimes the language is actually talking about what? The end. Sometimes it's actually talking about the day. See, all the previous days, little, let's, let's use a little d. The little, the little days are symbols, are symbolic of a big judgment one day. But there are little judgments that we see near fulfillment where God comes down and moves in government and things change, radically transform. The Israel being destroyed, the nation of Israel being wiped out, the temple being gone. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. It meant that there was a change. The old covenant was done. The new covenant was moving forward. God's new covenant was going. I think I got one more. Let's see if I'm right. That's a lie. I have one more coming though. So let's look. Mark 13. Now we come to something different. We've, that's kind of the background. That's what we've done so far all the way through verse 31 in Mark 13. Now we come into verse 32. I just want you to see it. I want you to see what he says. But of that day and hour. But. Dramatic change. Something has shifted. Gears have shifted. That's what that word indicates. But, gears have shifted that day. By the way, that's singular. Every other reference to days has been those days. Those days. Those days. But that day. You get what I'm saying? So when he's using those days, when he's talking about those days of tribulation, it's not talking about the big tribulation period. It's talking about a time of affliction. Very difficult, very hard, very bad. You don't want to be in Jerusalem when that happens. But on that day... He's shifting from what's happening here, what's happening with the disciples, what's happening then. And now he's looking at a future day. A day that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. But on that day, that day 
he says, And that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'll get toward the end of the verse in a minute. Let's talk about the day of the Lord. We want to understand the day of the Lord. So in order to understand what's going on with the day of the Lord, we want to understand that these phrases note and that always identify a time span. Not a single day, a span of time. When he talks about the day of the Lord, it's like, it's like saying there's a period of time where God's going to judge. He judged Babylon, he judged Egypt, he judged northern kingdom of, of Israel. One day he's going to judge the world. You with me? So when we talk about the day, there's an event, future happening, where God is going to sit in judgment over the, over the world. He's going to move and intervene in history. He's going to accomplish some specific aspect of his plans. He's going to do an amazing work in history. That's what it means when he says the day. The, now I want you to think how many times in scripture you have seen that day. And also, so the Bible tells in Hebrews, not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, and so much more, it's more important as you see that day approaching. The day approaching. These are references to, to that period of time, the end of days, if you will. Let's take a look at where we see the day of the Lord. The phrase, the day of the Lord, comes up in the Old Testament 19 times. In the New Testament, it's mentioned five times. Five times. I, I'm going to leave that slide up there for a while. So if you wanted to write them down, you could write down the references and check them out. But those are references to the day of the Lord, both Old Testament and New Testament. So when we look at the Old Testament, when the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord, it often speaks of it in terms of imminence or nearness. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord has come. Let's, let's listen to some of them. Here's what it says in, in Isaiah 13, 6. <clears throat> well, for the day of the Lord is near. For the day of the Lord is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. That's Ezekiel 30. In Joel chapter 2. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. Now why is it that the Old Testament speaks of it in those terms? Because sometimes God's talking about a judgment that is like a preview of coming events when the ultimate judgment will take place. So he, he gives us a little j judgment. Where God judges a nation like Babylon. God judges a nation like Egypt. God judges a nation like the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's a picture, an illustration, an example of what is yet future. It's the near peak. But there's a valley before the big peak. You guys with me? I'm hoping that you're tracking. So, so I don't lose. My wife says I lose everybody when I do this. So please prove her wrong. So... <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about it, so let's move post old. Now, there are nine references to the, the day of the Lord. I'm going to say at least four of those are for a day at the end of days. So if you want to say roughly half are for the end of days, roughly half happen right there before them. 
Little judgments, big judgment. Little judgment, big judgment. So when God says the sun goes out and the moon gives up its light and the stars fall out of the sky, it's an example that something radical is going to happen. But one day, the sun's going to go out, the moon's going to go dark, and the stars are going to fall out of the sky. When that happens, that's the end. The end of days. Every other reference is, is an example of a judgment where God is doing something dramatic within history. Well, let's look at the New Testament. The New, New Testament calls it a day of wrath. A day of visitation. The great day of God Almighty. Scriptures indicate that the day of the Lord will come quick like a thief in the night. We're going to look at that in a moment. And therefore Christians must be watchful and ready. The day of the Lord comes suddenly. When you don't expect it, the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord comes. So the New Testament references are always looking forward. They're looking forward. Old Testament reference paints for us the picture of what it's going to be like. Gives us a hint that there's a future event. New Testament shows us, yep, future, yep, future. There's a future, see? We see it most clearly when we spend time in a book of Revelation. So you're about to get a real quick sketch of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written in 92 AD. 92. The best sources, there's not utter agreement, but the best sources put the book of Revelation 92 AD. Okay? That's after the destruction of Israel. So it's talking, book of Revelation is talking about future. Future, future. You with me? Book of Revelation gives a hint on how to divide the book. The Lord Jesus says to John, the revelator, He says, write down the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation. Chapter 1 is a vision of Jesus Christ. Then he says, write down the things which are. Chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation is the period of the church. Seven letters to seven churches. We know something about the number seven, right? It's not only uh, um, accurate and a real number, but it is also somewhat prophetic, yeah? So we say seven makes a complete, complete picture. So if we look at, if somebody said there's seven letters to seven churches, I would say it's a complete picture of the church. Chapter two and three. Then he says, write down the things which will take place after these things. Metatauta. After what things? Two and three. What was two and three? The churches. So what takes place after the church? Chapter four. What's it begin with? This phrase. John. Come up here. So we see John in heaven, standing there looking around the scene in heaven. In chapter 4 and 5, chapter 5, we hear the song of the redeemed. As what I believe references the church, the 4 and 20 elders are gathered around the throne and they're singing the song of the redeemed. You have redeemed us from every nation. You have redeemed us. Angels can't say that, right? Only one group that can say that. So the church is singing there in chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 6 begins what we call the tribulation period. Remember, there's only one place in the Bible. It's called the seven-year period of time. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, seven years are left for the people. As God's attention turns to a Christ-rejecting world and nation of Israel, as He purges that nation and works a work of salvation. We'll see that God saves the nation of Israel. Not everybody, but he works a work of salvation for for corporate national Israel. Chapter 6, it begins. Four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? 
The first one, he's a pretender. On a white throne, that's the Antichrist. He comes promising peace. Remember what Daniel 9 said? He comes promising peace, but then what's he do? In the middle of three and a half years, remember the abomination of desolation? He sits in, makes himself to be God in the temple, declaring himself to be God. And then what did, what did Jesus say? If you're around when it happens, do what? Get out, get out, get out, get out. From where? Judea. Right? So it's the guys who are, if you're in Israel and you see that happen, get out, get out, go, run, flee, get away. That begins in chapter 6. Now some people, we struggle with a concept. And this concept is this. That the wrath of God can only be poured out on the unbeliever. Why is that? What do you think? Why can the wrath of God only go on an unbeliever? Because a believer, a believer was represented by Christ on the cross And the wrath of God was poured out on him. He bore the wrath of God for you and me so we don't have to. Does that mean we won't face persecution? No. Does that mean we won't face earthquakes or wars? Remember, those things are normal. So it doesn't mean we won't face those things. What it means is the wrath of God. That means God's punishment for sin. Jesus Christ bore that for the believer. So in the book of... Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, um, I think it's chapter 4, somewhere around verse 5, or maybe it's chapter 5, verse 9. That we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to remind you of a couple examples. I can't park on this for very long, or we'll be here too long. Let me give you a couple of examples. You remember when Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of God, did it fall on Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot in it? What did the angels have to do? They had to take Lot out. Lot, you got to get out of here. we got to bring judgment, but we can't pour out judgment here because you, you have believed God and it's been accounted to you for righteousness. Even, then you're, even though you're not a perfect man, you got to get out. Judgment comes. Are you with me? you got to get out. Judgment comes. Well, let's go back up a little bit further. Remember the flood? Flood, there was a guy named Noah. What did he do? Built an ark, yeah, but he got on an ark and, and then he rode the ark through the flood. That's not a picture of what I'm talking about. That's God carrying people through his wrath. What happened right before that? There's a fella. The Bible says when he was 65 years old, he started to walk with God. He had a child, and if you have a child, that's what it does. It immediately drives you to walk with God. <laughs> Am I lying? Man, you look at that little one, you look at that little one, you think, I'm responsible for the Lord. Lord, help. (laughs) Enoch, it says, Enoch walked with God, and what's the phrase? Enoch walked with God and was not for God did what? Took him. Enoch never died. He was translated into heaven. Why? Because the righteous, he's a picture. Remember I told you Old Testament is full of illustrations, little pictures, of a New Testament reality. Near, far, near, far, are you with me? Enoch's taken up into heaven, becomes a picture of the rapture. You are not appointed to wrath. Please, listen, that does not mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean people won't run around and try to kill Christians. None of that has anything to do with the rapture. All the rapture says is you will not be around when God pours out his wrath on sin. That's it. Are we together? So far? 
Oh, Lord, I have no idea where I'm at. Okay. So, so the New Testament calls it a day of wrath. Okay, day of wrath. It's day of wrath is coming. Scriptures indicate that it's going to come like a thief in the night. We don't know when. We always got to be ready. Always ready. Always aware. Always not going to sleep, not, not wasting our time. So the final outcome of the day of the Lord, we read about in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17. The final outcome of the day of the Lord says, The arrogancy of man will be brought low, and the pride of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted that day. That's it. That's the return of the king. King of kings, Lord of lords. Remember we started looking at the book of Revelation. I said chapter 6, the tribulation period starts. Chapter 19, the tribulation period ends with what? The return of Christ. The return of the king. It's a bloody day, right? You heard of the Battle of Armageddon, yes? All the world gathered together in, in rebellion against God. That day will end. Jesus doesn't need our help, but we'll be there. The Bible says that He comes riding on a white horse, and we follow after. So we'll, we'll be there, but trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm a little freaked out because I can't ride a horse. <laughs> I would be... I'd be way happier if I was returning on a, on a white Harley behind him. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's not how it's wrote. So, <clears throat> I'll have whatever time we're in heaven prior to the return of the Lord, I'll, I'll have that opportunity to learn how to ride a horse. But we're going to come back. Jesus doesn't need us. He defeats the enemy. 6 through 19, Revelation 6 through 19, tribulation period. Revelation 6 through 19, tribulation period. All those judgments during God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Are you with me? Jesus returns. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, millennial reign of Christ. The kingdom. Revelation 21 and 22. New heaven, new earth. And we live happily ever after. That's it. That's, that's the whole thing. Working our way through all the pieces. And I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, he, he talked too quick and I didn't get any of that. But that's the premium source for the day of the Lord in the New Testament. The book of Revelation, which is talking about a future day. Okay? Book of Revelation laying out for us a future day. A day that's coming. So it said, the scripture laid out for us that in, uh, in Mark 13, verse 32, let's look at that again. It said, but the day and the hour no one knows. It's talking about that day, the day of the Lord. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, that, that raises another question, doesn't it? How in the world does Jesus not know the day? I, I thought He was God. If Jesus is God, just like the Father's God, just like the Holy Spirit's God, then, then how is it that Jesus doesn't know something? And there's two things I really want us to pull out of this. Two things. One... There is something theologically called the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And his functioning on earth, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, his functioning on earth is that he emptied himself, he laid aside, not lay aside, he's not, not that he's not God anymore, but he laid aside the usage of deity and he came as a man. He was empowered at his baptism by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, descended upon him. The Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, all three part, or all, all three persons of the Trinity there at the same time. Father speaking, Spirit descending, Son being baptized. All there. At that moment, 
Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit for service. Every miracle he did, he did not do because he's the Son of God. He did because the power of the Holy Spirit was with him. So he was hungry. Because he was man. He was really a man. He had his humanity added to his divinity. So he was hungry. God's never hungry, but Jesus experienced hunger because he walked in our shoes. He also provides for you and I how we are, and what we can accomplish if we'll fully surrender to God and allow His Spirit to move and work through us. Jesus said, these things which you've seen me do and greater you can do. Right? Why? Because the same way Jesus is saying, the same way I do it, you do it. How am I doing it? Power of the Holy Spirit. Not because I'm God, but I'm coming in likeness of a man. I laid that, I, I put that aside, I took that off, if you will. And he didn't function in that aspect. He functioned as a man. Called the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. So he's, he's answering us like a man. The second thing I want you to pull out of it, I want you to see, is he's teaching us the importance of all this eschatology stuff. We start talking about the end times, and what's going to happen, Antichrist, wars, rumors, earthquakes, and all this stuff, and everybody does the same thing. They get a little bit freaked out. And Jesus is basically saying right here, look, I don't know when it's going to happen. Father's got that. The Father's got that. And I trust Him. See, in His humanity, He's given us a pattern. That the Father's got that handled. It doesn't need us. It doesn't need us. We got a little hint, a little tease by John the Revelator in uh, Revelation chapter 13, he gave us the most famous passage. Every heathen on earth knows the, the scripture dealing with the number of the beast, right? Everybody knows. What's the number of the beast? You ask anybody, it's somebody in, in the middle of a cave who's never come out someplace in, in the jungle of Peru, and they'll tell you 666. Everybody knows. So he gives us a little tease. He said... He said that, basically, um, if you're smart, you can figure out the name. And what has people been doing ever since? Trying to figure out the name. Henry Kissinger! Well, that's when I was a kid. Now it's Obama! Man, look, I just want you to, I just want you to realize, I, I, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I'm saying God's got this stuff handled. What does 666 mean? means it's infinitely imperfect. Infinitely imperfect. What's the perfect number? Seven. 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 Right? In the Hebrews, if you repeat something three times, it's infinite. If you say, holy, 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 what are they saying about God? He's infinitely holy. That's what they're saying. Seven, seven, seven. That, that's like infinitely perfect. Six, six, six. What's that? Infinitely imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. It's a mess. It's a mess, which is basically a great stamp that we could put over world history. It's a mess, isn't it? It's a mess. And one day, somebody's going to come popping up out of that mess, and he's going to have great plans. He's going to be a little guy speaking pompous things. Daniel chapter 7 talks about him. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the, the little horn. So we know that this is coming. So Jesus is saying, look, I don't, I don't worry about it because the Father has it. It's committed to the Father. Now, now in heaven, Jesus knows the day. Jesus is no longer under the limitation he was on when he was on earth. Right? When he rose from the dead, 
when he was walking around before he died, did he just pop into rooms? Boop, there he is. But after the resurrection, did he do that? Yep, he, he'd appear on the scene. There. What do, how do I know for sure? I get to the end of all the Gospels, and what did Jesus do? Went up into the heavens, right? Is that normal? Okay, so there's something, something's different, right? And Jesus ascends up into heaven, and the disciples sit there and look, and they look, and they look, and they look. And then the Bible tells us two men appeared on the scene, and they looked over at him and said, What are you guys doing looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who you seen go will in like manner return. He's coming back. The day of the Lord. A future event. Could happen at any time. So what is it that Jesus is telling us to do? Look at verse 33. Mark 13, 33. What's he telling us to do? Take heed. Watch and pray. For you do not know when the time is. Take heed. Watch and pray. What did I do with all my glasses? I had like six glasses. Look at this. Now, whose are these? (laughs) Lord have mercy. Okay, yeah, I can see with them, so I don't know what I've done with them. This is how I lose my glasses all the time. Okay, it doesn't matter. Take heed, watch and praise. What's he saying? What's he saying? Stay awake. Be aware. You got a job to do. You got a job to do. Jesus Christ is coming back. You got a job to do. Do your job till he comes back. Take heed. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. You don't know when the time is. What's he saying? Live ready with expectancy like you're waiting for your true love to arrive. You know, like you're waiting for... It's a perfect picture coming into Christmas time. Little kids for Christmas. Little ones. And they, they're thinking that Santa Claus is coming, right? They're Christmas Eve. They don't want to go to sleep. No, does that happen to you guys? It used to have... Still, we got Joseph. He's, Joseph's still looking for Santa Claus all the time. He's 19. So, so, but the little ones, what do they do? They, they're, they're on the couch. They're looking out the window. They're excited. They can't go to sleep. Oh my gosh, he's coming, he's coming. Santa Claus is going to come. Well, they're doing that for Santa Claus. The Bible is saying that should be our attitude, the way we love Jesus Christ, that we can't wait till he's here. We can't wait till we see him. We can't wait till he comes. So we're constantly looking for Him, looking, oh, come, Lord, come. Not so I don't have to go through hard times. Not so I don't get persecuted. Not so He saves me out of the crack of the earthquake right before the earthquake swallows me. That's not why we're looking for His coming. We're looking for His coming because He's coming. Him. We get Him. Him. It's, it's that incredible, dynamic love that we have for Him. In fact, in 1 John... Chapter 3, he talks about this same kind of attitude that we're talking about. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. I'll say we're God's kids. He says that we should be, this is the love of God. We've been called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Jesus said, the world hated me, they'll do what? Hey, you also, right? That's our relationship in the world, but not our relationship with God. Our relationship in a world. So, beloved, now we are children of God. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. It means one day, when we're caught up together with the Lord, we're going to change. The 1 Corinthians 15 says, My corruptible body, this broken down piece of junk I'd like to trade in, I get to get rid of, and I get a new one incorruptible, unbroken downable. It's not going <laughs> to... 
I do the best I can with English. I don't know what to tell you. It, it, won't, it won't pass away. It won't die. It won't wear out. It won't go away. This, it's hot up here. You guys hot? So turn on the air conditioner. Holy cow. All right. Okay, so the point. Beloved, we are now children of God. Not has, hasn't been revealed what we, but we know when he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And what's that next phrase? And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he's pure. What's that mean? Everyone who has this hope is longing and looking for the return of Christ, longing and looking for that day when we see him face to face, won't live in sin. They just don't want to have nothing to do with it. I can't be in sin and look for Jesus at the same time. Mutually exclusive terms. So, he, First John says, man, this is how it's going to be. This is how it is. This is the way our attitude should be. And I think Jesus is telling us, look, trust, trust God. He knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. He knows what's going on. In the midst of all the calamity and destruction and, and tribulation and, perse- uh, and persecution, even if the star goes out and the moon starts shining and the, and the stars fall out of the sky, we can all be assured That God the Father has not lost us. You are children of God. He won't lose one. Not one. No matter what's happening, He's got us. Nobody dies in Christ. Zero, zip, zilch. Nobody dies. To be absent from the body, what's the Bible say? Present with the Lord. Did you get lost? Nope, you're there. You're with Him. Not lost. It's not an issue of being lost. But there is a day. There is a day that's coming. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Talking about this day, Jesus says, Be careful. Stay awake. Watch and pray. Right? Stay awake. Watch what's going on. See what's happening. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Now, does that mean I'm supposed to start adding up everything? All the days equal a thousand, or all the thousands equal a day? What's he telling us? Time is different for God, right? Can we, are we okay with that? Time's different for God? He's, he's been around for eternity. That's, that's a long time. I've been around for 51 years. That's not so long compared to eternity. Yeah? God's time is different than my time. He's, he's so much longer. But look what it says in verse 9. The Lord's not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness. What promise are they talking about? The promise of His return. The promise of His, his return. The Lord's not slack. But he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should do what? Come to repent. So God wants everyone to have an opportunity to get saved. Right? Is everyone going to get saved? Nope. Doesn't say that. It just says he wants everyone to have a chance. So he says, he's not slack. He's going to keep his promise. He said, I went. I'm coming back. But before I come back, I want to give everyone a chance for repentance. I want to give people a chance. Sometimes he gives us more than one chance. Are you thankful for more than one chance? I know I'm thankful for more than one chance. So so he gives an opportunity, right? But look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you be? Listen to what he's saying. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. And when it does, all the stuff we hold on to so tight just burns away. All that, you know, that fancy new car you got, the, 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 the Harley I used to shine a chrome on. <laughs> all, whatever stuff, all that stuff going to burn. It's all going to burn. It's all going to pass away. So he's saying, how should we live? If that's true, the day of the Lord comes, there'll be a new heaven and new earth. God wipes all that stuff out. He, he delivers the, the church. What, what, how should we live? What's that mean? What's that mean for us if that's true? So he says, how should we live? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? Here it is. Looking for and hastening the coming day of the God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot, blameless. How are we supposed to live? Well, we're supposed to live like this place is not my home. That this is not the end all be all. Have any of you discovered that life on earth just leaves a little bit more to be desired? I mean, it's, I, I, just about the time I think things are going to be mellow out a little bit, I turn on the news and, and somebody's killing a bunch of people in Paris. Turn off the news, turn on a couple days later, somebody's killing a bunch of people in, in where was the other one? Africa? Mali. So over and over and over, all the time, right? Now what did God say about those things? He said, this is fallen world. This is effect of sin. These are, this is what happens when mankind won't repent and live. That's what grows in that garden. That's what comes out of that garden. And one day God says, I'm going to melt the garden. In the, in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things and that by him all things consist. What does that mean? It means that the whole earth is bound together by atoms, particles, molecules, right? And we don't really fully even understand how they all stay together. But the Bible says this is how they all stay together. God's holding them together. And in ba basically what's happening in, in Second Peter is Jesus, let's go. I'm holding it together, I'm holding it together, I'm waiting for repentance, I'm waiting for repentance. Read the book of Revelation. What's the thing you're going to theme you're going to see all the way through chapter 6 through 19? And they would not repent, and they would not repent, and they would not repent, and they would not repent. So, at the end, Jesus lets go. New heaven, new earth, this is not my home. Not my home. This isn't it. This isn't it. This is a preview. Remember I told you, two Two big mountaintops. Well, we're on the first one, and we think this one's pretty cool. Can't even imagine how great the next one's going to be. The Bible says you can't even imagine how great the next one's going to be. The purposes and plans that God has for us, that he holds together for us. So when he says, watch and pray, he's saying, look, I want you to be busy about doing my Father's work, accomplishing the things that God has asked us to do, right? Which is what? Make disciples of how many nations? A few? All nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are we supposed to teach them? The things that Jesus commanded us? 
And what? Remember that He's with us even into the end of the age. So what if it gets bad? What if it gets hard? What if it gets difficult? So that's, we, we live in a fallen world. But I promise you, before the wrath of God is poured out on earth, the Lord will take His church home. Why? Because you're His kids. Look, the Bible says that a father disciplines his children, right? There's a difference between discipline and the predisposed wrath and judgment of God on a Christ-rejecting world, isn't there? Yeah, if you want to know the difference, read Revelation 6 through 19. It's crazy. Right? But we're not appointed to wrath. We're appointed to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He saved me. But there's a day. There is a day. That day is coming. Look at Mark 13, 34 through 37. We're going to wrap it up. It's not even 12 o'clock yet. <clears throat> I, I think I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I know not everybody agrees. But anyways, look at, look at, he, he, he's given us the precept. Now he's going to give us a story to be an illustration for what he's talking about. Okay? Look at the story. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants to each his work. And he commanded the doorkeeper, watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. So he gives a story. I just, I just want you to see it. A man goes to a far country. Just think about it. Jesus, and not too many days, we're just two chapters from the end of Mark. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. Right? He goes to a faraway place. Then, then what's the next thing said? He gives authority to his servants. What is it that Jesus said right before he ascends? According to Matthew chapter, he said what? All authority has been given to me, how? In heaven and on earth. So do what? Go therefore. Make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. He goes to a faraway place. He gives authority to his servants. And he says, do your job. Do your job till I get home. Till I come back. Do your job. We don't got to be afraid of that. We don't got to be afraid. He says he's going to be with us. He says he's going to watch over us. Listen, temptation comes in a lot of different forms. Temptation comes in a lot of different forms. False Christ will raise false hopes that there's some other way. Mistaken signs will raise fear and we'll start freaking out and panicking about every little thing that's going on in a fallen world that Jesus said that's how it is in a fallen world. You need endurance. <coughs> Sometimes the delay of the second coming, because we're waiting and waiting and waiting, it's been 2,000 years, we become complacent. Ah, oh, he's not going to come. And what happens in complacency? We don't do anything. We don't do anything. We just lay around. We watch, you know, 792 episodes of Doctor Who. And, and during this, sorry for Doctor Who fans. And for all those episodes of Doctor Who, we, we weren't doing our job. We got one job to do. What's the doorkeeper supposed to do? Hold the door. He's going to open the door and let the master in, right? So I got to be what? Looking for him. So when the master comes, I'm going to open the door. 
He's got a job to do. The importance of the job is not, oh yeah, we're supposed to open the door. No, we're supposed to be awake. Because you don't know when the master's coming. And when the master comes, i got to do what? Open a door. So that means i got to be awake. i got to be awake. we got to be awake right now. Look, people are perishing without Christ every day, every moment. And it's not about you or me escaping some hardship in life. It's about you and me sharing the truth of the good news that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for me. And in repentance, if I will repent of my sin and receive that gift, then I'm covered. i got to repent. i got to grab a hold, lay a hold of all that God has for me. But because of a lack of knowledge, people perish. People perish. Authority has been given to the doorkeeper to be faithful. Authority has been given to the doorkeeper to do his job. We are the doorkeepers. We await the return of the king. We watch and wait with longing for that day when we will see his face. And may we live our lives in such a way that we have that opportunity for one and only one opportunity for all of eternity, for all of time, forever and ever and ever and ever, for ad infinitum. One opportunity. Every one of us, you, me, all of us, individually, not corporately, is going to have a moment with the King. We're going to look right in Jesus' face. We're going to look right into His eyes. We're going to see the scars. We're going to know the love as He's there. and Love just emanating from Him. And we got one chance to hear, well done. You got one chance. There's no, I want to restart. I want to restart. I don't get the, the 14 or better years of my life I lived as a heathen. Like I, after I got saved, which is not so good. I don't get none of that time back. I got now. I got today. I got this moment. And we live our lives in fear. Fear of the future. Fear of what's going on. But when they came to Jesus, all freaked out about their future. And it was bad. Bad things were going to happen. They were going to be beaten. And all this stuff was going to go on. And the city was going to be destroyed. And the temple brought down. But the Lord said, but this is not the end. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. We've got to endure. We've got to be okay with God being in control and God in charge. And remember that God promised, before I pour wrath out for sin, I'll bring you home because Jesus bore yours. Jesus bore yours. You don't bear it twice. Jesus does. And that's it. So look at what Jesus says. Look at what he lays out for us at the very last verse. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Sorry, that is Peter. Let's try that again. <clears throat> okay. And what I say to you, I say to who? All. Watch. Be ready. Be ready. Don't be afraid. No reason to be afraid. No reason to be afraid. Man can do nothing to you. Amen? Amen. Man can do nothing to you. God however, has a future for you. Amen? Amen. Does he have a plan for your life? Yes. And we have a job to do? Yes. And we need to do our job. Yes. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to to live our lives loving you. We thank you for the opportunity to bear witness of your truth and what you've done in our lives. And God, I thank you that prayerfully, Lord, as the word of God goes out, as we study the concept of end times, that it's not something to be afraid of. The whole point and purpose is to say, one day, Jesus is coming back. One day, this is all going to end. But I don't have to be afraid of it because I'm a child of God. I'm one of his kids. I'm like one of those servants that the master went away. And he's been gone a long time, but I'm supposed to watch for him. And if I'm looking for him, I'll be ready. So God, I want to be ready. I want to be living my life in such a way that I'm, I'm not afraid to tell someone where I stand. I'm not afraid to say, uh, sorry, man, that's sin. You need to repent from that and, and come to Jesus and be saved and set free. That we would not uh, uh, lose time and days as a result of, of uh, being complacent. Seeing something else as the, the great burden of our time. But that we would realize and recognize Man, this is my time. This is my life. 70 years, maybe 80, whatever time I got, you're asking me to spend it serving you, watching for you, looking for the return of my beloved. So God, may we have those eyes, eyes of expectancy, looking and recognizing that life is hard and bad things happen, but I got a job to do. And so did the disciples. And I thank you, Jesus, that they are examples to us in that they did their job. They spread the word. In fact, in the book of Acts, it says that they turned the world upside down. Or right side up, depending on how you look at it. God, I pray that we would be like them today. We turn our neighborhoods upside down. Our families upside down with the truth of your word. For God, you are worthy. Yes. You are worthy. So empower us to be the men and women you're asking us to be. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might bear witness to your truth. Yes. Equip us. And God, if there be anyone here not a child of God who has not repented had called out on God with repentance of saying I'm turning from my sin and I'm reaching for you God not that we don't ever sin but our attitude is I want Jesus I want Jesus not my sin I want Jesus I want what he has for me God I pray if if there are people amongst us that don't know you they don't have to walk out without repentance they don't have to leave they don't have to turn their back They can receive the promise because you said that this promise is to us and our children and to as many as are far off, to all whom the Lord our God will call. So God, the call goes out. Come unto me, you said, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.